it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. Hi, I'm Bruce, News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and once again, that's what we're here to do, talk about beer. This week, we meet Steve Hopkins, General Manager of Kegstar Australia and New Zealand. With a long career in the FMCG industries, that's the fast-moving consumer goods industries, as you probably know, including time with Cadbury, Asahi and Coca-Cola. Before his current role at Kegstar, Steve has some very interesting insights into building and managing sales teams. Also, in his current role, we look at the impact of COVID on draft beer sales and whether keg formats have changed significantly following the changes of excise on kegs under 50 litres. It's a great chat and very informative about where we find ourselves in the beer world post-COVID. I hope you enjoy it just as much as I did. Steve Hopkins, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. So you're based in Sydney, aren't you? So we were having a little bit of a chat off mic about, you know, the post-pandemic. We might touch on that a little bit again, but how's everything going for you? Yeah, no, really good. Thanks, Matt. Uh, So yeah, we're based in Surrey Hills in Sydney. And yeah, like post-pandemic, we're actually starting to see the market pick back up. Um, Definitely in Sydney, it's starting to to come back really strong. Um, I know there was times around my office where... Surrey Hills is a booming area, but there were times when literally you could shoot an elephant gun, you wouldn't hit anybody. It was it was just desolate. But the great news is people starting to come back into the city. We're starting to see the market pick up. You know, if I look at my numbers for this year, we're that not that far off our 2019 numbers where we were a monopoly uh, then. So now there's there's competition in the market. So that's sort of telling me all goes well. Um, some states obviously faster than other. Some countries like New Zealand are a lot slower than others just with the restrictions that they've had. But yeah, definitely the market's sort of headed in the right direction now and we can start to see people out and about spending, tasting the great craft beers that are available across the country. Well, we might uh, come back to that, but let's go back and uh, start with a question I ask a lot of our guests and, and that is, who is Steve Hopkins? Who is Steve Hopkins? Oh, yeah, good one. Look, um, I've been in the industry or the FMCG industry for 25 years. Um, started as a, as a rep for Schweppes Soft Drinks, which is now Asahi Beverages, way back uh, in Wollongong, you know, some 25 years ago. Worked my way up from a, a sales rep to a district sales manager to running our branches in Canberra, Wagga and Albury to eventually becoming the state manager. So it, it was a really good grounding because I got to do every single role along the way. One of the great things was that's where I got my taste for the license industry. So um, part of the calls that I could do there were, were, were calling on uh, pubs, clubs, hotels, restaurants, and you know, selling uh, and seeing the, the beer industry. Uh, that's where I got that taste. Did you go into sales straight from school? I'm always fascinated about the things that lead people um, into their initial careers and what their various forks in the road are or sliding doors moments are? Yeah, no, that's a, a really funny one. Um, look, I originally wanted to be a school teacher, Matt, and um, my dad actually had bought a, a small goods business and was really struggling. So I literally jumped out of uh, uni to help dad with the business and I loved it. Uh, I loved, uh, I love people, love meeting people, love talking to customers, love selling. 
and just realized this was something for me that ultimately sold the business. And then I, I, I went on and, and sort of got into Schweppes. Um, and then from Schweppes went to, to Cadbury's and then Cadbury's ran Cadbury Schweppes, um, then into Coca-Cola and then ultimately into Kegstar. So I've had a varying run. From the way you explain that, it sounds like you didn't finish uni. You jumped out to help your, your dad and the business out. Oh, one of the things I realized really quickly, Matt, was school teaching was never not going to be for me. Um, it just was something that, uh, yeah, I'd started, I'd actually had my first prac out at school and, yeah, no, it was, uh, it was something that definitely wasn't going to be for me. I, I, since then, I, I've done an accounting, um, some work with accounting and business studies and different things like that. But yes, uh, school teaching. Definitely not for me. <laughs> okay, so you're almost saved by having to save uh, y- y- your dad's business. Definitely think so. And uh, dad's business had a lot of cold calling. So, you know, we, we would be knocking on uh, restaurants in the middle of the night uh, to sell, you know, some of his herbs and spices. So it was really an induction of fire on how to sell and, and, and get your selling skills right. And I just loved that. It was just something, meeting new people was just something that I loved. And then ultimately through my career, I've loved just running teams. Um, I've had, you know, teams from 10 people up to 310. So I've had the, the big and the small and, and I've just loved every minute of it. So, um, yeah, but it's all led me to Kegstar, which has been a fantastic opportunity. I've done a little bit of sales, um, just a, a, a very small amount, enough to know that it's not my skill set. It's, it's, it's not what I do. When you started in that role, did somebody take you under their wing? You know, did your dad say, this is how you, you know, this is how you approach. These are things you need to be mindful of. You know, don't drop in at the restaurant, you know, at, during meal prep and expect to have their full attention. You know, what, what was your introduction to, to sales? Yeah, look, I think it, it was definitely with my dad. So my dad was, my dad was the ultimate people person, dad was just loved by all the customers. He was great at building relationships and rapport. And, you know, dad probably taught me the the best lesson was treat people as they want to be treated, treat them with respect and give them really good service. So I think the one big thing that stuck with me all the way through that if you give people the great service, you you actually create a nearly a raving fan um, of yourself they will actually pass that on to, to many and many more people and then that's how your business grows. So I definitely worked on that facet. Um, I always gave everyone the best customer service that I could, followed everything up and then I've tried to instill that in my teams as I, I've moved through with my career. Tell me a little bit about the, the business because again you described it um, you know, as a small goods business, a small, clearly a small business and it was struggling so you wanted to help his his business out yeah what was the market so this would have been late 90s early 2000s was it or even a little bit earlier middle 90s um mid 90s okay yeah so dad uh dad had never actually owned a business before uh, and uh bought a business that was a uh a small area of a small goods business originally around the the sutherland shire and uh, basically then extended the business went all the way down to eden so he he went from sutherland to eden sold a whole range of products from um, sausage meal that the butchers make sausages with to herbs and spices, garlics, sold even uh, fresh rabbits. Um, so there was a whole uh, plethora of different small goods that Dad had to offer, which which could be ranged to butchers, restaurants, um, hotels, clubs, pretty much it was a really broad range. So the scope was was fantastic. Uh, Dad built that business, you know, from struggling at the beginning 
built it up from just the one truck to eventually he had four trucks and, and yep. quite well before he retired. But yeah, I was there at the beginning after he'd sort of taken it on and sort of struggled. And it was really good learning for me to actually understand how business works, what to set up, how you had to run it. Dad was, as I say, great with people, but maybe not so good on the, the back of house, which I learned really quickly. What, what did he do before then, if that was the, the first business that he owned? Oh, my dad. So my dad had um, previously worked for um, some like truck uh, companies like uh, Brambles. He'd worked in the okay. steelworks down in Wollongong. We came from Wollongong. So yeah, he'd spend a lot of time working for people, um, retired, and then had this light bulb moment. You know what? I think I'm too young to retire. I always wanted to retire at 50. Retired at 50 and then literally at 51 said, you know, I need to do something. Uh, I think I'll kill your mother if I, uh, if I don't. So, um, he was out and about working and, and that was another great thing that he did in his life that I think he got a great deal of value out of. It fascinates me um, that I didn't have entrepreneurial parents. I had parents that always went off to some, to a job where they worked for somebody else. And I've ended up in, in now in a small business that I never had the, expectation that I'd been be doing and uh, so I, I do wonder what other people learn when they see a father go off and you know suddenly start have, have such a massive life change and take on a business um, that you, you've been called into um, clearly and you, you said that he wasn't great on some of the, the the business sides but he had had his strengths and so what did you learn through that process? I think the first thing that I learned Matt was um Obviously, you need a business plan, and I think this relates to a lot of the sort of brewers that, that I've come across too. So there's a lot of brewers out there that, you know, think um, over a beer, we'll, we'll start, start our brewery, and, and I think that's pretty much how Dad sort of was talking to someone and thought, this is a great idea, um, but you definitely need your business plan, and then you actually need all the business acumen, all the things to fall in line. So one of the great things Dad was good at, he was great at selling um, but one of the big issues we had in the business was actually collecting payment for the things that we'd actually supplied. <laughs> so uh, one of the things I learned really quickly is, um, you know, it's not really a customer unless they've paid their bill. So we, we, we needed to get <laughs> on a lot of those things. So, um, yeah, I definitely learned there was a lot of pitfalls, but it, it actually was a great learning experience for me and Dad. Like Dad learned from it and, and quickly moved forward and, and grew that business really well before he eventually retired again. But um, yeah, it definitely has held me in good stead for moving forward, but I've never wanted to probably have my own business. Um, I, I felt more comfortable in, in sort of running other people's and, and running bigger teams. So yeah, but it was a good learning. First of all, thank you for uh, for picking up what I was putting down about you know what you can what what the parallels are for the for, for the brewing industry because we, we do see a lot of people who love the idea, yeah, but and have a skill set that might be brewing or you know even talking about beer, but then that's the tip of the iceberg that's required to actually have a successful business. What 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 was it that you saw working in your dad's business? Obviously, you loved aspects of it, but what was it that you saw of yourself that you didn't want to go and pioneer your own business, but you thought that your skills were better employed in another business? I think, um, look, I think how we got dad's business back on, on sort of really on good track, we found a mentor. So we found somebody who had a similar business. They sort of talked us through all the things that they had set up. You know, even as far as how quickly they could collect, um, you know, payment for, for items that had gone out. But yeah, definitely for me, it was more, you know, 
I definitely like that more the people aspect and, and managing the teams rather than that original thing of running the business where I think I've now come the full circle. I'm sort of back at the point now where, you know, the business I'm in now, I'm running that business totally, even though it's not mine, I, I, I pretty much have the, the control of that business. So I've probably taken a while to get to this point, but uh, yeah, I, I've, I've eventually got there. <laughs> You, you were working for Cadbury's, I think. So you, or yep. you, you worked your way uh, initially to Schweppes, you said, and yep. then sort of moved your, your, your way up and ended up back. Schweppes wouldn't have been owned by Asahi at that stage. No, no. So um, I, I, I basically worked up to state manager of Schweppes um, and then we were Cadbury Schweppes, even though the two companies mm. worked separately. Um, I was then asked, uh, did I want to be the state manager of Queensland for Cabri? Um, and my boss at the time said, hey, look, this would be great learning. You can learn another side of the business. I went and ran that business for three years. Uh, they then brought me back to Sydney and they said, hey, we're finally going to merge the total business to be Cabri Schweppes and sell everything. Um, and then I was GM of New South Wales and ran the whole Cabri and Schweppes business for New South Wales, which was a great opportunity because it was merging two teams that literally hated each other into one. Uh, so there was uh, some some really key things that we needed to do around teamwork and getting people to work together. Um, but yeah, we brought that business together and it actually was pumping. It was it was really on fire, doing so well. And then unfortunately, uh, Cabri decided to sell worldwide. They sold to Kraft um, and then the Schweppes part got sold off to Asahi. Then I worked with Asahi for 12 months um, before they, they pretty much made all the, the, the GMs there redundant. Um, and then I pretty, pretty much got a job an hour later working for Coke. Um, and then became, uh, worked my way up at Coke state manager then to, to run their beer team. So I was the head of beer at Coke and, and ran everything with beer. Um, and we acquired the Feral Brewery, uh, from Brendan Varus back about five years ago. And that was a great opportunity. Fantastic brewery. Brendan had done an, an amazing job with the beer. Uh, Brendan uh, stayed on as a consultant for a good while. Rob took over from Brendan, learnt from Brendan. And probably my one great thing I think I did while I was at Coke was I was able to keep that brewery separate from the Coca-Cola system um, so it could actually stay um, pretty much like a little independent like it was. And, and really, we just used Coca-Cola to help fund it and grow the business and, and potentially really just use it for some packaged goods with, within the corporates. But all the on-premise team, all the sales team stayed exactly the same. And, you know, we're able to grow that um, to, to where it is now, uh, which was which was great. Actually, there's a few things in that that I wanted to, to chat. And I might go back to the point you made about, you know, managing teams and building teams because... That's one of the things that I don't know that I necessarily ever wanted to do. And it's, it's, it's one of the things that limits me in terms of growing the business that I'm in because I never, I, I, I can't actively manage staff without feeling that I'm Ricky Gervais in the office, you know, <laughs> yeah. that, that, I'm, that I'm channeling that, that any, you know, words of encouragement and, and which is a huge limitation. But there are some people who are naturally good at it and, uh, you know, are able to bring teams together and inspire their staff. Um, and <laughs> depending on how you, how you go, it can either be Ricky Gervais or it can be, you know, a, a great inspiring uh, manager. But what is the key, do you, do you think, to building teams? Yeah, look, I, I think the key to building teams is, firstly, one, you, you, you do have to have that passion for, for doing it. And I'm sort of very lucky. I, I love doing it. Um, it's just the one thing that really sort of 
gets me going. But I think um, the other thing you have to be is you have to be honest. So there's going to be times when, you know, some people are excelling and you really need to be able to understand what turns that person on and give them the right cues to be able to continue to motivate them. Um, and then there's there's the other people potentially sometimes who aren't pulling their weight that you have to have that honest, open conversation to say, what's the expectation? But, you know, one of the things I always do with all the team and everyone individually um, you know, I get to obviously know everyone and, and sort of what what's their key thing to turn them on, but understand what their expectation is and then them understand what my expectation is. And then once we've done that, it's really simple because, you know, they know what they need to do and I need I know what I need to do for them. So as long as we both can deliver, uh, that's what sort of creates a team. But, you know, if I look back, the team that I had at Cabris and Schweppes, so big team, there was 310 people, and they literally hated each other. So uh, we, we had never worked together. Um, that was probably the biggest challenge. And what was the source of that tension? Was it because they were competing? And, 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 so, and, and I, I, this is the other challenge that I see. I see a lot in businesses that should all be pulling on the same rope in the same direction, but because of the way the business is structured or the, the, the way it's set, quite often you actually set people that should be working together to work yeah, diametrically apart, and then they have all of that resentment, and and it, to, to me it seems massively counterproductive. Yeah, yeah. Look, um, a lot of times you're hundred percent right, Matt. A lot of times there's conflicting KPIs, which um, you know, salesperson's KPIs might be to sell, and the operations person's KPIs might be how to 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 get stock delivered in a really um, smart, efficient way. But the issue that I had with those two teams was you had one team that was the, the market leader in Cabri and the other team that, that wasn't was, was more, uh, out there sort of battling away in Schweppes. And it was just the difference of where they both saw themselves in the marketplace. Um, but look, we did a few things to get them, uh, all working well together. And the first one was, you know, when we brought them all into, uh, we were sort of working in an office that was side by side, but we'd never been in together. We just rearranged the office firstly and butted everyone up into pairs. People who were working on the same customer, whether they're working on Coles or Caltex or whether it be a small independence. And then the other thing that we did was every Friday, I had a, uh, a person come in and under the guise of a fitness session, we actually had team building sessions for about six weeks. And literally in five weeks, the team were gelled. They were, they were great. Once they got out and started to um, do a bit of orienteering together, doing a bit of running together, a bit of fitness, um, you know, and then had a really good cold craft beer afterwards, you know, they, they pretty much became good friends and worked really well together. And once we had that and they'd overcome that and they were then all holding on to each other's hand, you know, there was no stopping them. So uh, that's that's the the key, and then to keep them that way, that's the that's the trick. <laughs> that leads me into my next question. When you hear the spiraling ownership that that businesses go through, you know, so you've got Cadbury Schweppes, and then that spun off, and then that's bought by Asahi, and then that buys people, and then you know Coca Cola then sold off its beer assets. How how challenging is it to when, when in 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 a very dynamic ever-changing business role where you want to build allegiance to a business and a shared vision for the company. Yep. Is there an uncertainty about, well, how long is this going to last? And so how much am I going to invest myself in this thing that in 
18 months, two years could be a very different thing than what I'm even uh, working in now. Yeah, look, one of the things I've learned is you can never sort of predict what's going to happen. I think in any of those big big businesses, things can always happen. Um, I'd probably go back to, you know, maybe 15 years ago, um, Coca-Cola actually bought Schweppes worldwide and um, everybody thought they were losing their jobs. I was at Schweppes. Everyone thought they were going to lose their job. Uh, my boss, actually the state manager, he left uh, in fear that he was going to lose his job. Now, the ACCC came in and said, hey, this can't happen, and nothing happened. Now, out of that, great opportunities came. I actually got to be the state manager, so uh, I, I, I did a nearly like a Bradbury. But um, it, it, you just can never tell. So the one thing I always say to my team is let's just focus on the things that we're really good at. So the things that we're good at is doing our job. So if we do our job, everything else will always take care of itself. And I think if you do that and block out the noise, because there's always going to be dynamic dynamic changes where, you know, we see it even now just in the craft industry where, you know, some of the big players are buying, some of the, our big players in the industry. It's always going to happen. But, you know, if you continue to do your job, people will always want to keep good people. So, um, you know, obviously we want to buy into the people that we're working for is, um plan and ambition and everyone holds hands but any noise we hear outside you know is just noise we just need to focus on what we can control mm. and, and i guess that's relevant to your role now uh, as general manager australia new zealand kegstar which is a business that started in australia expanded was uh, bought by i think by, by brambles and now is owned by microstar yes. um period of rapid change pioneering business model and now, you know, how you fit into a global environment uh, with, with you and your team. How, how do you manage that? You know, because uh, it, it's another series of challenges in, in a slightly different if uh, allied industry. Yeah, no, no, it's a really good point. And I suppose it leads on from the, the last point too, Matt. Well, I literally started at the business and was in the business for two months when we got acquired by Microstar. So, um, huge, huge change. Um, and I must say it's been the best thing that could have ever happened for the business. So, um, the, the opportunities and advantages that have come our way with Microstar. So Microstar, the, the biggest keg pooling company in the world, um, 100% focused on kegs, 100% focused on quality. They have over 6 million kegs in their fleet. It's just given us a huge opportunity to things that we couldn't do, uh, you know, before. Like um, since they've come on, they've helped us acquire nearly 40,000 kegs. They're going to build a service centre to us. For us, it'll be the state-of-the-art, best one in the Southern Hemisphere. They have big customers like Constellation. But we need to understand our place within their business as well. So to your point, um, we're probably uh, the smallest part of their business but the great advantage that gives us is they want to grow us fast and, and they can give us the tools to help us grow. So the excitement that I have is we now have this uh, opportunity and pathway where we can actually see what they've already done. So the things they're talking about aren't sort of pie in the sky things. They're things that they've built, they've established. They serve us as an example, Constellation, the biggest brewery in the world. They supply that facility, which is like Mondello as well. They service that whole facility. They build a service center next door called Eagle Pass. Every single keg that goes in there goes through the service center. Um, so it goes into that brewery like a brand new keg every time. So they're going to bring that technology to us. So it, it gives you great opportunity. So I think um, whenever you see these businesses sort of get bought and sold, there's always 
a story that goes with it when it's when it's purchased, then sometimes that story doesn't end out to be the same. The same. This one I, I can say has actually probably been better than the story that we were given, which uh, is really good for the business and, and sort of moving forward. And then already some of the things they've helped us do around increasing more people, um, getting more vans, more collections, obviously more kegs. So everything that we want to talk about is goes back to my sort of beginning in the first part of our conversation. How do we be the supplier of choice and how, how do we give the, the best customer service that we can in the marketplace? So that's what we're all about now. We've completely changed everything since uh, MicroStar's taken over from, you know, our pricing model. We don't do scanning anymore. All of the things that, um, that maybe some of the, the brewers out there didn't like. I've spent a lot of time talking to the brewers across the country and everyone I've met can probably testify. The first thing that I say to them after hello is, what are we doing well and what, are, what can we improve on uh, to, to find out what are the things that we need to do? And, and some of the brewers, are, you wouldn't believe it, Matt, are really honest <laughs> and give you some really good oh, No, I, I, I know the brewers are very honest, um, <laughs> judging by the emails I receive. <laughs> yeah, so that's actually helped us tailor-make uh, an offering now that I think is second to none and, and gives the, the number one thing that every customer, every brewer needs is, is guaranteed assurance of keg supply. So um, not only have they got quality kegs, they've got the kegs when they need them um, and, and all variants of kegs as well. It, it's interesting when you go out and ask for feedback, there, there's still something in in us that we're selective about the, the messages that we take and that, that's a, a great human failing. Yeah. Um, the, the things that we take away aren't necessarily the things that are being told to us. How do you go out and, and ask and get some fairly, um, you know, forward feedback mm. but how do you capture that in a way that you know the message comes through yeah look we, we've tried a different format since i've been here so we, we tried surveys uh we we tried um just general feedback from our team what they were getting obviously we've got um a section on our uh, inbox that comes in where people can leave feedback um, but I've generally found the best way is obviously once we're at a brewery talking to the brewers and then if we do get a chance to have a beer with them because once everyone has a beer, they then literally drop their guard down and, and they will be really open and honest. And look, I've, I've heard some fantastic things, but I've also heard some poor things that we've done in the past that we've had to fix. So um, for me, feedback is always a great thing. Like it, it helps shape your future if you take it in the right way. And um, all feedback is good, whether it's good, bad, or otherwise. You, you just—it's just how you use it. So, um, we've used it really dramatically. Like our business model has changed completely. So, we've moved from a variable pricing model, which which people didn't really like, to a fixed pricing model, which is a microstar model. Um, you know, we we don't have any fees along the way anymore. It's one price, and then that's your price. People uh, don't have to scan everything that. The, the feedback that we were given, we've actually now been able to tailor make it to fix. So we now have a really super simple model. Um, it's really easy to, to understand and, and, and easy to sell. I actually felt a little bit sad for my team uh, previously before I'd got here. Once I was out with them trying to sell our model, it, it was a hard model, um, but now it's really simple. So I think we're, we're in a really good spot now where you know, we've got this added resource that's coming through with MicroStar. We've got a really simple model. We've actually tailor-made it to what customers want. We still have our leasing model. We still have our pooling model. Um, we've got 
everything now that, um, you know, it's just onward and upward. And as, as I said earlier, you know, the market is starting to pick back up. We're very close. We'll finish this year very close to our 2019 numbers. So, you know, that's a good thing. So we're here for the long run. We're here to expand. We'll be getting more and more kegs from MicroStar. Our service centers will be built soon. And then we'll start to, to ramp up. And once the service center's there, that's another whole opportunity we can take to brewers and, and even people who own their own kegs and, and start to talk to them about how we can help them as well. You mentioned that your data is showing that the numbers are starting to pick up. Is that because you, cause you uh, Australia New Zealand, so you're supplying across both those markets. Yep. Are you seeing the markets are coming back at a uniform rate or, you know, are some of the, uh, you know, New Zealand, which had a longer lockdown, uh, Victoria, they had a very heavy lockdown compared to the other Australian states. Yeah. Are you seeing differences from state to state and country to country? Yeah, most definitely, Matt. So um, if we just talk New Zealand to start off with, New Zealand has had a really super tough time of it. Um, they really have came off amber lockdown really only in the last six to eight weeks. So they've, they've had a really prolonged lockdown. Um, at one stage, you know, we were saying Victoria probably was the lockdown capital of the world. I, I think now New Zealand probably surpassed that. Um, so New Zealand is now just starting to really open up and sort of bounce back. But yeah, I think they're, they're going to take a few more months before they are back to where they would consider sort of back to some sort of normality. In Australia, it's quite funny, like um, over the first period, um, WA obviously had no lockdowns and they were just booming along 20, 30% up in, in the, the first COVID hit. Um, they never got their COVID hit until right at the end till everyone was sort of over it. So they then took a little bit of a knockdown and they're just sort of coming out of that now. Their numbers are starting to bounce back. Um, New South Wales, Queensland really sort of nearly back to really good normality. Victoria, which is really good, um, has started to bounce back really well. So in the last two months, you can see when you're down there, even hotels, uh, restaurants, all now starting to be fully open. Hotels in the past... Um, go back three or four months ago, some of them were only opening three days a week. So they're now getting back to, to full seven-day-a-week trade. Um, the, the one issue that's still impacting the total market is just um, employment, being able to find people to man their shifts. So that still seems to be a, a really red-hot topic across, um, you know, um, brewers, pubs, clubs, uh, restaurants, still finding it hard to, to get the right amount of um, workers back in to, to be able to man fully. Does Kegstar capture any data around, one of the things I've been hearing is, you know, the table ordering um, devices, which, uh, you know, were, were really amplified or, you know, accelerated during COVID. And we're seeing now as staff um, it, it, issues continue. Do, do you have any data around that, or does your, or, or do, are you hearing anything about how that's helping uh, the, the the staff shortage? Yeah, I, I don't. But look, in in a previous role, um, I did help part of my team sold some of those things in, and some of the some of the evidence that's sort of come through. And just talking to you know um, places out in the market that actually have those those order um, mm. menu logs there on their table, they're actually saying that it it does help with the amount of orders and the amount of um, sales they get. Um, me being a little bit semi-illiterate when it comes to those things, I always find them quite difficult and frustrating, I have to be honest. But if you talk to um, 
you know, any of the venue managers, they're saying that it definitely helps, particularly in the staff shortages, where they can get orders at the table and straight to the bar mm-hmm. and then sort of help. Um, so that whole thing was designed to actually help speed of service. But now I think it's also helping out to your point where there's maybe a lack of staff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they're definitely helping. Well, that, and that, that was, I, I'm a little bit like you. I, I, I understand the technology. I don't think I'm bad on it, but I don't think the technology is that mature yet, which, uh, you know, will, will only get better um, and, and easier and more people use it. I had somebody tell me recently that the key was to get the drink out in under five minutes uh, or the, the, the order out in under five minutes because... Otherwise, it's going into a black box. The, the order's going into a black box, and if it's 12 minutes, at, at least if you're standing in line at a bar waiting for 12 minutes, <laughs> you can see the bar staff are taking orders and, and working, and they'll come to you. Whereas if you uh, order on the app and you don't get it out quickly, they're going, did my order go through? And they're, 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 there's no feedback um, on, on that. No, I, I totally agree. It can be frustrating. I, I've been at some venues where they're really good and they get it out super fast, and I've been at some venues where... You literally have to go back to the bar to say, "I put my order in. Is it coming?" <laughs> but yeah, look, the, the general the general answer from any of the venue managers is those things are definitely help helping, and it's probably been a little bit of a godsend with staff shortages. Actually, one of the other things I'll pick up on, I think one of the last times we had um, Kegstar on, it was in the before days, in in the before times, uh, before COVID. And it was not long after the excise rules changed about keg sizes and, you know, it didn't have to go out in a 50 litre keg. And the industry was very, very uncertain about whether, you know, 20 litre kegs were going to become much more popular, whether it was because of workplace health and safety, whether they were going to be popular for smaller run beers. What what, what data are you picking up or what, what are you seeing around the take up of uh, smaller kegs? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. So we're actually seeing a huge take up at the moment for 20s and 30s, um, particularly since COVID. So one of the things, obviously, a lot of the brewers would always put, you know, um, the, the beers that they were trialing, they would always have those in there. But what we're actually seeing now is a lot of the venues, particularly restaurants um, or smaller type venues, uh, the brewers are really making a charge at, at, at 20s and 30s for those venues mm. because they can turn the stock over a lot faster. They actually fit, they can actually have them under the counter, uh, if, depending on what sort of equipment they've got to serve it from. But yeah, we've, we've actually had an influx. Um, and I would say that's literally been for the last 18 months, um, where it was 30s that were going really well. Now it's probably moved to 20s. But there is definitely a call out for that smaller format. And, and it is normally on seasonal or, or those smaller venue size that they go to. And, and particularly, I'd say that's, you know, restaurants and, and smaller bars. So what percentage of your fleet is the non 50 litre keg these days? Oh, look, it's still only small, Matt. I, I would still say that, you know, 20s and 30s probably... Let, let's say it was maybe only 5% of our fleet uh, going back, say, five. Or actually, if you went back five years ago, it was probably 2%. Um, I would say now it's probably more closer to, say, 8%. Um, so it's definitely grown. And there's pockets, um, particularly Queensland, where um, around the Gold Coast, um, and I think it's more the, the sort of venues that they have where 
um, 20s have taken off and 30s have taken off. We use a lot of 30s, which we export to Hong Kong and Singapore. Um, so there's a lot of 30s that go up there and then go around Hong Kong and Singapore. But yeah, locally here, um, there's definitely been an uptake since COVID. And, and I think it's also around when COVID started to rules started to come out, a lot of the um, hotels would say, hey, we're not going to have all of our banks open. So we will only have X amount of banks. So I think then it was really pivotal some of the brewers to have kegs that turned over really fast. What's the resistance, do you think, to smaller kegs? Because, for, again, it ticks a lot of boxes. Everyone talks about the workplace health and safety of lugging around a 65-kilo object um, that's awkward and uncomfortable, yeah. uh, that, and there, that brings in inclusion issues, um, yeah. freshness and turnover. Um, you know, there, there, there's a whole lot of things that the smaller keg formats do allow, but yes. we, we haven't seen a massive, from what you're saying, take up. What, what, what do you think is the resistance to them? I think ultimately it's a financial call. I think ultimately, you know, the cost of moving a you know twenty liter, thirty liter in comparison to a fifty is the same. So, so pretty much because it's 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 based on the the footprint. You know, there's not that much difference when a when a brewer, whether they're a corporate or a craft brewer, um, fill those kegs. You're right around fresh freshness and quality. It's always going to be better in that smaller format, but you know, the economics of those probably aren't as good as, as what they're getting out of the 50s. So I think that's where uh, the 50s always be. And then from a venue point of view, um, unless it's a smaller restaurant or bar, the bigger venues, they don't really want to put, you know, 20s and 30s on. They want mm. to be, you know, not changing their kegs over as much because they've got a 50 there and they know that's going to go through. So it's a little bit of both from, from a venue point and from a brewing point around economics. Are we seeing any innovation in the, the, the draft beer market? Yeah, well, uh, look, obviously everyone uses um, on-premise and draft is the trial. So you get in there, they trial it on draft, and then that's how they seed it into the, into the off-premise, into the package. Um, we're we're seeing, seeing a lot of different things sort of coming. Like I, I know there's, there's fruity beers um, that are just coming out now from one of the, one of the big corporates. Um, but I think where I'm probably seeing a lot more around keg space is there's a lot more, um, even beers, but like, uh, obviously Celsius, RTDs now that are starting to come into the market. Um, probably, uh, you know, one of the biggest RTDs, obviously Canadian club that's in the market is, is huge, but Celsius now are starting to slowly creep in. So, um, they've sort of pushed out cider in a little bit of a way. Um, cider sort of dropped off. Celsius jumped into that space. Um, and now we're seeing a lot more cider, uh, Celsius on the market. You know, guys like, uh, even Fella, you know, they are going everywhere and, and getting really huge sales, um, from, from their kegs. So yeah, we're definitely seeing that. Um, there's obviously, it, it's funny, um, Obviously, there's a, always a push for really higher ABV beers, um, but then sometimes they're not as sessionable, so you don't you don't see them come and go in really big offerings. Um, but yeah, there's there's I see the biggest sort of thing coming into our market is is people now trying to bring out different variants of of RTDs or um, seltzer type beers. Kombucha sort of came in for a little bit and it's sort of gone now. It's it's like minuscule but it's more that seltzer 
slash RTD that's sort of now sneaking into the market. Okay. And how about in technology in kegs themselves? You know, if size isn't changing drastically, is there anything uh, that we are seeing in terms of just the mechanics of, uh, of, of kegs? Um, look, obviously, uh, there's there's been a trial. We've been trialling um, technology on the kegs. So all of our kegs have RFID. Um, so we use that technology. Uh, we've also tried our tracking. So we have a, a tracker that has four points. It has Sigfox, RFID, Bluetooth and Wi-Fi um, sending the signal out. Um, that is still in trial. Uh, what we, we've, we've got literally over 25,000 in the market. We're still trialling. The one, the one fallback on that equipment is when the keg goes down into the cellar or, or goes down a few floors, the signal strength. So it's all around how can you consistently capture the signal. Um, and then there's, there's places in Australia that, you know, when you're on your phone, they just have black spots. So, um, that technology is still in trial. It's still working, but it's probably not at a point where we're probably 100% comfortable to roll it out across the market. But yeah, still working on it with our IT team on how we can sort of get that to the, the optimal level that we can then say, hey, it's 100% now and we, we can roll it out everywhere. Last question for you is, you know, what should the industry be looking at um, these these days in terms of, you know, Kegstar very focused on draft draft beer you know what 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 are the the leading trends and the big things that you know brewers should be looking at in terms of kegs and 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 the future of beer uh, in kegs oh i think um i I think firstly every trend within the market whether it's in you know beer whether it's in rtds whatever it is, is all around refreshment so if you can have uh whatever your offering is if it is tasty and super refreshing and actually you have all those cues around refreshment um the next is around uh health and well-being so we've now seen like beers you know great northerns even you know it's 3.5 percent people are now really conscious around um you know their health their diet their well-being so i think as the market moves we're, we're sort of seeing a push to you know more healthy offerings that are coming into the market along with that refreshment queue so um obviously we've now got zero alcohol coming in um some of them are really good, by the way. Um, some, you know, not so. But I think if I was a brewer and I was out there, I'll be definitely looking to how can I actually shape it to to where most of the market are moving to. Um, and then the other thing around, uh, you know, I, w- I would be looking at um, kegs and on-premise is obviously the best way. So one, it's the most profitable. Um, two, it is is the fastest way to get trial for your beers that you can actually then start to get uh, people on board and start to grow that area around your brewery and then you can move into package. So it's the, the best form of trial that you can have. So um, on-premise and craft and, and obviously keg is, is the 100% way to go to get your foot in the water, get people trialing, get that understanding. And then also people with their brew pubs, you know, that becomes the place where they experience that great beer. Mm. They get an affinity for the venue and then they become really an advocate and a fan of that beer as they move forward and tell their friends. So it's all around that experience factor as well. That's an interesting uh, point you make because on-premise trial is the way to get people to trial 
And we've, we've recently seen that backed up by some uh, data by um, Nielsen, Nielsen uh, CGA um, data. But then we're also hearing that for small brewers, it's harder than ever to get their beer on tap um, to, to, to have it trialed. So there's that real competitive tension in, in, yes. in the industry, but then tap rooms do provide that opportunity to uh, have, have trial, I, I guess much less spread out, but still a very important uh, way to engage people with uh, with new beers. Yeah, I, know. I think that's a really good point, Matt. I think as we've seen where it's been really hard for some of the craft brewers to, to get into and get a tap within venues um, because of some of the deals that the big guys have, have got in place. I think um, the really smart guys and guys have been able to have a bit of cash and set up a really good tap room. That's been the way for them to get in and actually really accelerate their brand. And also the one thing is when you go to that venue and it's a great ambience and you just love the feel of it, you actually get the affinity for that brand. And, and then you remember the good times while you're there drinking with your mates mm. over that beer and it, it always comes back to that brand. So that's pretty much the next best way for a lot of the craft brewers to actually grow their brand and then start to uh, to eke out. The, and the best way for them is, you know, they go suburb by suburb, start in your own suburb around your brewery and then slowly start to move out and, and you know, start to own that area. Um, I've seen a lot of times where, and I've been involved where, you know, we've had a great idea, great brand, and then we've just tried to put it everywhere straight away. And then unfortunately, those brands tend to die a natural death. Mm. But the ones that actually build the brand around the venue, creating the experience and, and getting all the right cues and then slowly start to spread out, they're the ones that long term um, survive and, and people remember the, those brands and, and the venues. Mate, some great uh, insights and advice there, including about selling small goods, I have to say. So, uh, <laughs> mate, thank you very much for being part of this conversation about beer and other things. Great. Thanks, Matt. Really enjoyed it. And that was Steve Hopkins. I'm keen to hear your thoughts on draft beer and how it's going post-COVID and what your experience is, given that you are most likely, if you're listening to this podcast, working in the industry. You can discuss that by joining the Radio Brews News Facebook group. If you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out by sponsoring the show, particularly if you've got a business that supplies the brewing industry, you can have a little bit of that Brews News effect on your product as well. You can review us as a listener on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcasting service, or you can email us at producer at brewsnews.com.au to share your thoughts. We'll be back again this Friday with our discussion about all of the news of the week, and we look forward to joining you again soon.